Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Welcome those of you that are joining us online this morning. If you're here in the room, we're so delighted to have you with us. Take your Bibles out. We're going to go to the book of Isaiah chapter 9, and we're in a series called Good News. So we're looking at different aspects of good news. Good news for the hungry, good news for the homeless. And today we're going to be talking about good news for those who do not have any hope for the hopeless. And we're going to look at this feature of hope that God offers us at this Christmas season. I love this story. I was getting ready for this morning and I came across a little story of a family love to get ready for Christmas. How many of you love to decorate your homes? Wow, we got to work on the rest of you. Yeah, they love to decorate their home and so they went overboard. They decorated all over the place. They had the lights up and the tinsel, and then they they did one of the special picture window displays. They did the nativity with lights on it so that anybody going by would be able to see the nativity story, wanted it to be prominently featured in their home. And they were saying, the homeowners were just writing and responding to this, they were saying two boys had walked by, two younger boys had walked by, and the, the whole nativity scene sort of just caught their attention, and they stopped, and they looked at it, and they could tell they were pondering. They were confused by the whole story, and they could overhear the little bit of the conversation that was taking place. And the one boy said to the other little boy, he goes, I don't think they believe in Santa Claus. And the other boy just looked at him, and he goes, it's okay, they're nice people anyway. Sometimes... We act just like those little boys. That little moment that took place right there, I think it reveals a much deeper issue that plagues humanity. It's called misplaced hope. They didn't see hope in the nativity. They were seeing hope in the picture of Santa Claus. And I think a lot of times, for many of us, when it comes to the Christmas season, we have that same affliction. We misplace our hope. And so the story of the nativity and the pictures like we just watched are wonderful and they're familiar and we we incorporate them into our celebration, but when it actually comes to the hope, I wonder if we truly understand the message of hope that God offers to us. See, I think the Christmas season affords us this much-needed reprieve from an incredibly stressful life. Now, we wouldn't automatically admit that, but I, I believe a lot of us, we live with great deals of stress, and we actually look forward to Christmas, not because primarily the message it's going to give But if we were really honest, and I think the rest of society would join us here, there's a reprieve. It's like a little bit of an anesthesia to an overcrowded year. It gives us a break from pressing deadlines and demanding clients and unpaid bills, failing health, underperforming economies, obnoxious supervisors, not at the church, dismal investment returns, failed exams, and uncertain futures. And Christmas, the season, injects a sense of optimism that just somehow global warming and war and fracking and terrorism and politics and economies and hacking and personal security, that all of these things are going to work themselves out. I don't know how, but Christmas gives us this little bit of this golden window where we can just back away from it all and go, in the future, I think it's going to get better. So much like two little boys that are just peering into a nativity scene through a front window, we peer into our futures and we believe that our, our future's going to get better. Not because a baby was born 2,000 years ago, but I, 
I think maybe because there's a hint of optimism and we buy into what John Lennon said, we can imagine ourselves into our future, into a better utopia. And so what I want to talk about this morning is the message of the nativity is timeless, it's eternal, and it's filled with hope. That's why the story is there. It's not simply a tradition that we go back in our memories and we fondly recall. It's the power that presents with us today the opportunity to step into our futures with a confidence that God understands what we're going through. See, here's the good news. For those who have been unable to optimistically imagine a better future for your lives, it just hasn't worked for you, there's hope. For those of you who have been disappointed by parents, anybody raised hand? No, don't do that. For those of you that have been disappointed by parents or families or friends or traditions or religions or customs or politicians, people have let you down, there's hope. And for those of you that are living in destitute and difficult situations where you just cannot see light on the horizon, can I tell you this morning, the reason we're here and the reason we celebrate is there's hope. That's what good news is all about. It brings us the hope of the promise of Jesus Christ. So, so let's get into this. This is a promise that echoes from ancient days past. This is a promise that takes us back into the time, a time period when it was around 740 BC, the era when global domination was the preoccupation of kings and monarchs and pharaohs and military machines. When everybody was bent on world conquest and to be the dominant world power and everybody else was to be subjugated, in that era, God would speak and bring hope. And in that era, Israel is divided into two kingdoms, not only warring with each other and divided underneath their monarchies, they're now being invaded and occupied by military forces. And so they're under distress and they have no idea what the future is going to look like and they're fragmented in their relationships So the conflict and the oppression is severe and fear and mistrust and uncertainty is rampant and hopelessness is pervasive. And it's into that precise moment in history that God says, when you think it's the bleakest and you think it's the darkest, then get your eyes off of your circumstances and lift them up just a little bit because there's hope. And I need you to hear me this morning because all of us go into the Christmas season with different feelings, different emotions, and for some, it's a high time of the year. We're having a great experience, and family and friends are gathering together, and you've had a pretty much unrivaled year. Nothing has really sort of undermined your momentum, and it's all been good, but others of you, your year has been a little bit choppy, and there's been uncertainty, and there's been hurt and anger and pain and disappointment. This morning, I walked into the church, just to give you an idea, I walked into the church And I was getting ready to come up and do a mic check like I do every Sunday just to present. And as I walked up, I came through the back and through the back door, one of the gentlemen who attends our church came in and he just said, Pastor Doug, do you have just a minute? And I said, sure, I can do that. And so I said, can you walk with me? And he said, yeah, let's do that. So we're walking together and and I just paused and said, how can I help you? And he said, and he just, he wasn't dressed like he was coming out for the day, looked like he'd been outside for a bit. And he was just standing there and I could just see holding back the tears and he said, Doug, my dad just died. I said, when? And he said, this morning, today. And we just stood there, and I was just stunned in the moment. Here's a gentleman in our congregation. He said, would you pray for me? I said, you bet we will. More than that, we'll come around you. That's what this is all about. And so I was able to tell him, I said, "You you don't even know what I'm about to preach. I said, my entire message is what you're going through right now. There's hope for those of you who feel like in the moment you're in the middle of hopelessness. You're never hopeless. God is always there. And so we had that wonderful prayer. And I just was able to build up his spirits for a few moments and walk with them. Friends, I don't know what you're going through, but here's what I want to remind you of today. 
as you carry the joy into the season, and we should do that, I also want you to know that no matter what you're walking through, God brings good news to us today. He brings us hope. So get your Bibles out. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah is about to prophesy to the nation, and he wants them to know that even though they're in the middle of a really bleak situation, it's not always going to be this way. And so here's how it rolls out. Verse 1, it says, Nevertheless, there will, be more, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he has humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor the Galilee of the nations, the way of the sea, and beyond the Jordan. And he goes on. He said, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Drop down to verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be in his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of his greatness, and of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and with righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, can you imagine... Can you imagine how, when the people are listening to Isaiah prophesy, how they would be reacting? So Isaiah comes onto the scene, and he's got a burning message from the Lord. He goes, I just want to share it with you people, because I can see the distress, and I can see the uncertainty, and I can see the panic in your eyes. And he goes, there's going to be a better future. And it's almost like the people are going, Isaiah, seriously, have, have you read the Samaritan Sentinel? Have you picked up the Jerusalem Post? Have you been in the marketplace? Have you tuned into the headlines? I mean, Assyria is just pulverizing us from the north. We're at war with each other. Our nations don't get along. We're divided in our monarchy. And you're talking about a hope and a future? The king is just pursuing his own means and his own desires. He doesn't care about the people. And yet Isaiah says to them, I want you to hear, there is hope. God is promising hope for us. And he begins to paint a picture which is so dear to our hearts. And those of you that have been walking, your followers of Christ, you know this verse. And it becomes a treasured verse for us at this time of the year. But into the bleakest, bleakest of situations, Isaiah prophesies. And this prophecy is something that we need to hold on to because it gives hope. So take your notes out. We're going to three quick qualities I want to share with you. So when we talk about this hope, here's what I want you to understand. I'm not going to talk to you about optimism. Optimism is that self-induced, self-generated sense of expectation towards our, you know, if I can pump myself up and if I can believe in a better future, it's going to be good. Now, I want to talk to you about hope. I want to talk to you about the eternal quality of hope God gives us and the distinguishing qualities that this has over optimism. Number one, hope prevails regardless of your circumstances. The longer we're in destitute circumstances, optimism begins to dwindle, but hope will prevail regardless of our circumstances. Now think about their situation. It's around 740 B.C., somewhere in that time, and God's repeated warning, he'd been calling his people back, you got to come back, leave your way of sin, leave your idolatry, leave your wickedness, leave your rebellion. If you don't do it, there's going to be judgment, and the people's hearts are hardened and they're turned away from God. The king, king's only focused on his own needs. So now you have all of this in place, and the false prophets are proclaiming peace in spite of the persecution. Neighboring countries are looking at the Middle East, are looking at the nation of Israel and Judah as a prime destination for them to invade. And in this moment, Isaiah says, hey, it's going to be okay. So what could Isaiah say that would fan the embers of hope? 
What could he possibly bring to people that would inspire them to believe that in spite of what they were experiencing, don't become discouraged? Look in your notes. Verse 1, Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. Here it is. For those who were in distress... He paints it with a past tense context. He lets them know that even though we are going through a difficult time and even though our circumstances seem contrary to what I'm announcing to you, there's coming a day when hope is going to prevail. Don't lose sight of our future. Well, let's face it. Who of us has not become callous to the promise of hope? Our politicians offer it to us. Our civic officials offer it to us. Our economists offer it to us. We hear it so often and it fails so many times that we become callous to it. So little wonder when we hear something out of God's word lift up and say, I promise you hope, it has to penetrate the callousness of our spirit and our hearts for it to take root in our lives. And that's exactly what Isaiah was doing. He goes, get past your king and get past your circumstances and understand God will never leave you. God will never abandon you. God will never forsake you. This is the God who understands. Look in your notes again. Stay at verse 1 just for a moment. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for mothers wondering how they're going to feed their children, for nations wondering about their futures. He says there will be a day when all of this is going to turn around. He doesn't diminish. He doesn't diminish the reality of their circumstances. But he does lift their eyes up. And he says, I want you to see that there's a better future. You know, sometimes we get caught in the immediacy of our situation that we can't even see the possibility of hope. One of our staff pastors was with his wife in Toronto recently, and they were on their way home, and they came across a situation. And he told us about it and said, we got to get a picture of that. Like, that's just incredible. And it was a scene of an individual who was homeless. But look at this. As he's seated by the side of the road, the picture said, homeless, not hopeless. He was giving away free Bibles. Is that not too cool? That in the middle of his circumstances, he's going, yeah, I need some help. But I'm not without hope. There's a future for me. And he's offering people the source of hope. That just spoke so deep into my heart. That's why I love the story of the nativity. Every time I look at the nativity, I am reminded that hope will always prevail no matter what I'm going through. A number of years ago, I had the chance to travel down to Venezuela with a team, and we were serving on a short-term missions. One of the afternoons, I had some free time, and I made my way over to an artisan shop in beautiful pieces. But in the corner, on a back shelf, was this one solitary piece fabricated to imitate a leaf. And it was very delicate, very, very fine. And inside of the leaf was a picture of three figurines, Mary, Joseph, feeding manger, and Jesus. No shepherds, no angels, no three wise men, no complications. A beautiful, uncomplicated piece. I had to buy it. Absolutely had to buy that. And I brought it home and I showed Laura, and it's one of our most treasured possessions. And so it's always there. We bring it out at Christmas time, it's on our shelf. And you ask, well, why is it such a treasured possession for you? Because of the uncomplicated nature of the message. Every time I look at it, it reminds me, central to the story was a woman, a young teenage girl who needed hope. That when the angel said, fear not, there was a lot to be afraid of. You found favor. That's okay. Nobody else is going to give me the same favor. She's about to be ostracized and cast out and disregarded by friends and family and relatives. And God has chosen her. And in the middle of that, Mary's going to need hope in spite of the hopelessness that she might face. Then there's Joseph. 
dreaming of the beautiful union with his wife-to-be, what it's going to be like in the future that he can give to this woman, and suddenly he finds that she's already pregnant. And that panic that fills his heart, who was the other man? How could she dare violate our vows? And yet the angel would remind him, and so he knew, but others didn't. And the greater context, the shepherds in Bethlehem, they all needed hope. Hope was one of those things that we understand is essential to our faith. And yet so often our circumstances overwhelms it. And I would remind you today that God's hope, the eternal quality of his hope, it prevails no matter what we go through. Look in your notes, Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Against all hope, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so he became the father of many nations. He understood what it was to have circumstances that were less than promising, but he refused, he refused to give away the hope that God had deposited in his heart. That's good news for us today. But here's another quality, number two, write it down. Hope is not bound by time. It's not bound by time. So often in our optimism, everything is affected by time frames. And the more time that passes, the more our optimism diminishes. But when you look at the quality of hope that God gives us, it's a quality that's not bound by time. Impatience is as kryptonite. Impatience to hope is as kryptonite is to Superman. How many of you know Superman? You know that kryptonite substance? Yeah. That kryptonite that sort of weakens and disables him. I got thinking about this. Impatience works the same way to our hope. That we're such an impatient culture, aren't we? We're, we're afflicted with impatience. You're not with me so far. Oh, yeah, we are. Some of you are going, how much longer are you going to be, Doug? We're afflicted with impatience. We're a culture that just, we just want everything to move faster, and if anything slows down, we get agitated with it. Just now follow this, just so we're all on the same playing field. How many of you love to stream movies? iTunes, yeah, Netflix, all that. You know the the wait time between when you select to begin watching the movie and it actually loads, and you're watching that? I'll I'll rent a movie on iTunes, and I go, come on. And I'm watching the little spooling thing, and I'm going, it's been at least 40 seconds now. Why doesn't it start? We're all like that. We go to a fast food restaurant, and we go, we want it right now. We get our phones out, and we want to connect instantly with the other person. And what about our Wi-Fi speed? Oh, man, don't even bring up Wi-Fi. You know what I did? I was typing this in, and I actually, you know, because I'm talking about impatience, I was typing so fast, I typed the word wife. I, thought, I don't know if that was a Freudian slip, but that is not something I would ever say about Laura. I, I'm not impatient with Laura. I'll give her lots of room. But impatience is one of those things that just afflicts us. In fact, here's something that just happened to me recently. Even our debit cards. Have you noticed now with our debit cards that we have to insert our debit card to punch in some numbers, and we're so impatient that they've actually, they issued me an updated debit card. They go, now you can just wave your card. I go, that's wonderful. I got a card. I just wave it anywhere, and just I can buy whatever I want. Well, you know it doesn't work like that. You got to have the little reader there. But I got thinking about this. Is it just me? I got thinking about this. How impatient are we that we have to wave a card because I can't punch four digits into a machine anymore? And so they gave me this gift, but then I I paused and I got thinking, I go, yeah, maybe we do need it because we've all been in the line behind you. You know where I'm going with this. We've all been in the line where the person can't remember their PIN number. It's like, uh, is it one, two, three, four? You're going, oh, come on. I'll buy it for you if you just get out of the way. I'll pay for it myself. We're so impatient. 
And our impatience affects our hope. It's caustic to the very nature of hope that God offers us. And when I look at the story of the Christmas and the nativity, it reminds me that hope is not bound by time. It's not constrained by what I want it to be constrained by. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Isaiah says to these people who are living in destitute circumstances, he says, but in the future, God's going to honor his promise. And he identifies three regions in the area of Galilee where where God is going to bring restoration and the people are going to see a light that dawns in the midst of the darkness. And he tells these people there's going to be a day and there's going to be a time when hope is not going to be bound by the limits of time and there's going to be the opportunity for national restoration and there's going to be a point where your hope is going to be fulfilled. See, hope, and don't miss this, hope has no expiry date. It doesn't. It's not restrained by time. Laura's off visiting her family in Edmonton. Some of you know that we have a little bit of a, a family difficulty. One of our, my sister-in-laws is dying from cancer, and so she's visiting with her family right now. So I'm batching. That's sometimes a good thing and a bad thing. So I went home the other day, and I wasn't overly hungry. And you, have you ever gone home and you go, I really don't want a whole meal, but I do need a decent snack. You with me? So I got home and I thought, I, I really don't feel like preparing a whole meal. I just need a snack, something, substance. So I thought, I started scouring through the cupboards and I opened up the cupboard and I went, oh, perfect. I saw a couple of containers of hummus and some pita bread. Now, if you've traveled with me, you know, this is like, this is food. This is power food right there. I thought, oh, that's, that's all I need. That would be the perfect little snack for me to go through. So I pulled out the container, I pulled out the, the bread and I laid it on the counter. And you know the plastic tab on top of the hummus bread? So I snapped a little tab off, and I open up the bag, and I reach in. And as I'm pulling the hummus bread out, I go, it feels a little papery. But, you know, I'm Scottish. I'm thrifty. You slather it with hummus. I can power through anything. No problem. That's good for me. So I, I just kind of left the bread there. So then I pull a container of hummus out, and there are two little containers in there. And I take out the first container, and I peel back that transparent seal on the top. I peel back the transparent seal, and I look at the color, and I go... I don't know if they're supposed to look like that. You ever have that moment where the coloration's just a little bit off? It's not too far gone, but it's just not quite the way, you know, Joe, it's not quite the way I remember it in Jerusalem. So I'm looking at it, and I'm going, I think it should be a little brighter color. But I go, maybe it's a different bean. Possible? So again, being Scottish and hungry, those two things are lethal together. I go, I'm just, I'm just going to dip and go. That's what I'm going to do right now. And then a little voice spoke to me. Have you ever eaten anything rancid? You have. I can just tell by your response. And I went, oh yeah, that, Doug, don't, that's a bad decision today. There's another dish of hummus. Grab that one. So I pulled that one out thinking, okay, I can rectify the problem. I pulled that one out. I didn't even have to pull back the transparent cover. It looked like a Petri dish gone bad in a laboratory experiment. It was the wrong color. I thought, what's going on here? So I flipped the other container over, best before March 2016. (laughs) Apparently, that was last Christmas. I thought, oh. So I picked up the plastic tab from the pita bread, flipped it over, best before October 2016. My next newsletter is going to say, please invite me for dinner. I'm desperate. What do expiry dates of Hama and Petus have to do with good news? We do the same thing to God. We stamp expiry dates on our hope. I'll I'll trust you, God, as long as you answer my prayer 
in my time frame, not yours. I'll trust you, God, as long as the other person initiates the forgiveness and comes to me and says they're sorry. I'll trust you, God, and fill in the blank. But we do. We inject our expiry conditions into our hope stories rather than looking at what Isaiah did to the people. And he goes, listen, it doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter the struggle, the uncertainty, the pain, the difficulty, the joy, the celebration. God offers his hope, and it's not bound by time. It's going to come. It's going to happen exactly the way that he said it is. And every time we peer into the nativity, hope stirs in our soul. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope after all, at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Abraham died without seeing the promise fulfilled. Moses died without seeing the promise fulfilled. David died without seeing the promise fulfilled. Not a single one of them lived with an expiry date on their hope. They trusted God completely. So friends, Christmas reminds me there's good news. Though maybe I can't see it in the immediate future, God has said there is a future where he will bring all things back into its right order. That's hope for us. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope in a future. We love that verse, don't we? We love to claim that verse, but rem- just remember this morning, let me remind you, that verse... That was given to people living in the land of darkness and bleakest of situations where oppressors were invading the land. And God says, but I know the plans I have for you. I know what's going to come in your future. Friends, hold on to that today. Whatever you're in the middle of, hold on to that hope. Number three, the third quality of this eternal hope is that hope is not a plan. It's a promise. It's a promise. Israel was given an incredible promise that in spite of their distress, in spite of their uncertainty, in spite of their fear... God was not going to abandon them. So the question, again, let's live in the immediacy of their circumstances because it has to relate to us. So if we were there living in the time and we see the Assyrian forces and we see uh, all of the oppression and the brutality that's taken place and we see that there's an absence of provision of food and nourishment that we need for day-to-day living and Isaiah says, don't worry, don't worry, I got hope for you. You got to beg to ask the question, how? Is this going to happen? So they would have been waiting, hoping that maybe Isaiah was about to say something like this. Israel, listen to me. There's going to be the reunification of Israel. There's going to be the restoration of Israel's infamous military forces, reminiscent of those led by our own King David. There's going to be a conquering hero that will rescue us from a hopeless nation. There will be a climactic finale of the whole story and the ascension of a powerful king who's going to be endowed with wisdom. And he will lead and love the people. He'll be skilled with extraordinary military prowess. That's what they would have expected Isaiah to say. But what does Isaiah say? Verse 6. For unto us a child is born. What? What good is a child when Assyria is taking my land? What good is a child when we're watching our sons and daughters fall to this oppressive force? What good is a child when hope has been vanished from my life? I like what Ray Ortland says. He said, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. 
The power of God is so far superior to the Syrians and all the big shots of the world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully, but to simply come as the child Jesus. See, hope, it's not mere optimism. It's not dependent upon our circumstances. It's not projecting ourselves into our preferred future. Hope is utterly realistic to the current realities of our life, including the bleakest of our conditions, confident that in each and every moment of our life there is the presence of eternity, and within it God pierces the darkness with this unimaginable future. Did you catch that? That in every moment of our life there is the presence of eternity and God pierces the darkness with this glimmer of an unimaginable future. What's your darkness and what is it? that God brings hope into your story today. Peter Larson says that despite our best efforts to keep him out, God chooses to intrude. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered into our world through a door that was marked no entrance, and he left this world through a door that was marked no exit. That's the promise of hope that we have. And so this Christmas season, May we be like two little boys who pause by a decorated home to peer into a window. And as we peer in on the picture of the nativity, may it not, may it not simply be a point of nostalgia, but may be a point of confession. That here in that story, in a world that is riddled with misplaced hope, God's promise is resolute. And we see it again. The Lord himself will give you a sign, and the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him... Emmanuel. For friends, that's hope that carries through all eternity. And that's the hope that God offers us. Greg Azamakalas is a pastor and a writer. And he wrote a little story about a Christmas experience in his own home. And I want to share it with you. It's just such a great wrap-up for us today. He talked about when they were getting ready for Christmas and as a pastor going down to the church and coming back home again. And so I, I actually want to read his words so you catch the, the spirit of what he shares here. So put yourself in his home for a moment. Greg writes this, <clears throat> he says, the boxes of Christmas decorations were all carried up from the basement. So I had to go off to the church, so the serious work of Christmasizing our home was going to have to wait until I returned. So in the meantime, my five-year-old daughter, Lauren, was content to play with the miniature plastic nativity set that we kept in an old Lifesavers tin at the house. When I returned back home, I was greeted by my wife, Wendy, in the inviting aroma of dinner. Stealing a peek at the table, I saw that Lauren had placed pieces of the nativity set at each person's plate. Apparently, shepherds and wise men, cows and sheep, were all joining us for dinner this night. Just then, Lauren raced into the kitchen. Oh, Daddy, Daddy, her voice was panicked. Jesus is missing. We've looked everywhere, and I can't find him. She was right. As I glanced around the supper table, I didn't see the baby Jesus anywhere. We'll find him, I said. I said, sure, he must be stuck underneath the couch, a cushion, behind a chair somewhere, but let's look after we eat. And look, we did. Low and high, high and low, under the couch, in the plants, in the Barbie playhouse, we scoured Lauren's coloring desk that was cluttered with stickers and markers and crayons, a half-full can of pop, everything but Jesus. And as my compulsive find-whatever-is-lost-at-any-cost neurosis kicked into high gear, I zeroed in on Lauren's pack, backpack. Greg goes on. Lauren is much like her sisters. She carries her backpack everywhere she goes, and in it she transports her treasures, hair bows and hats and Barbies, her stuffed kitty, her plastic wallet, gummy bears. So I decided 
Let's look in the backpack. And there at the bottom of her treasure trove was Jesus. Here he is, I proudly announced. Jesus was in your backpack. He's ready to go with you to school tomorrow. I've often reflected on the search for our MIA Jesus, and I now realize that Jesus really wasn't missing in action. He was in the middle of all the action. His place in Lauren's backpack was divinely appropriate. There in the midst of all the symbols of my daughter's interests and activities was the Lord of life. And that reality extends far beyond a five-year-old. As we face a new year crammed with commitments, each of us can begin the year confident that Jesus is right there in the middle of it all. As much as it drives us crazy not to have the Jesus piece in its proper place in the nativity or at the dinner table, he belongs in our minivans, our briefcases, our purses, our gym bags, our suitcases, and our debit cards. Greg summarizes it this way. God's uncontainable love for his creation spilled over into a manger, a carpenter shop, a fishing boat, a tax collector's home, a Roman execution scene, a rich man's grave, and an upper room. The good news of Christmas that catapults us towards Easter is that we are not alone. The one who made us has come to us, and he will remain with us in all that we attempt. I couldn't have said it better. Good news. God never abandons us. He never leaves us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, whatever you face, I have good news for you. It's hope that God will fulfill what he promised he would. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the powerful reminder of the Christmas story. I pray that today that you would just speak deep into our hearts because every one of us, we all come from different situations, different circumstances. Some are on a similar journey to what we're in the middle of. Some are on journeys where they're filled with joy and celebration and others are on journeys of uncertainty. But regardless of what we are facing, we thank you that this Christmas season you remind us there's hope. That as we look upon the nativity, There's hope in the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that hope will echo for all eternity until you fulfill what you said you would do. So I pray today that we have our hearts and our spirits renewed and reengaged and once more reminded that all that you have promised, you will do. That faith would arise and that courage would be instilled in our hearts. And I pray for men and women, young people today that are in this room. Perhaps maybe some for the very first time, they've never said yes to Jesus, but this Christmas season, they recognize that Jesus, you came to give them hope, to be Lord and Savior, and they can simply invite you into their life by saying, yes, Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you came. You died for my sin, raised to to life by the power of God again, that we might have eternal life. And so, Father, I pray that as we acknowledge that prayer, and others embrace that prayer for the first time. May this season be marked by your message of hope. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.